You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Hey everybody, this is Randy Bolander on the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. I am so glad to have you with us today. We have a busy day. I'm just giving you a heads up. I know a lot of you have told me, love it when it's about 20 minutes long because I can listen to the podcast when I go to Trader Joe's because apparently they live 20 minutes away from Trader Joe's. This may be a two or three Trader Joe trip podcast. So if you get to Trader Joe's, you can either sit in the car and listen or you can put it on pause, go in and get your bananas and your JoJo's and come back out. I don't care. I won't know the difference. It will be just the same to me. I'll just keep talking. But I'm just giving you a heads up. There's a lot going on today. I've got an announcement. I have got uh, a guest section. I have a couple of thoughts on a question that I was asked and a couple of thoughts on a question I was not asked. But we'll get all to that in a minute. First of all, announcement, announcement, announcement. September 27th, this Sunday, The Bridge is meeting live and in person. If you've been tracking with us, you know that we have been uh, launching a congregation in South Kansas City area, and in the meantime, there has been a pandemic, and so it has been difficult to meet in person. We've been meeting online quite a bit, and it's been good, but it's not like being together. And we're going to be together on September 27th, which is the Sunday following uh, the release of this podcast. If it's past the 27th, sorry, you've missed it. We're going to be gathering outdoors at the barn at Riverbend, which is down near Peculiar, Missouri. I could explain it to you, but the easiest thing to do would be to go to thebridgekc.church. That's thebridgekc.church. There are maps there. There are explanations of what to expect. Uh, there uh, is just all kinds of information there. So you can go there to thebridgekc.church for information on how to join us on Sunday. It's going to be fun. Uh, Rachel and Walese Faagutu, along with their team, are going to be leading worship. Pretty excited about that. Um, we're going to be sending out missionaries. Uh, our little fledgling church is sending our first missionaries, and so we're going to spend some time praying over them. I am going to teach uh, a piece a little bit here on the idea of abiding in Christ during these crazy, crazy seasons that we are in. So would love for you to be with us on Sunday down at uh, the Barnet River Bend. Go to thebridgekc.church, get all your details, and join us there. Now, I told you there was going to be a second section. We had uh, Jason Upton with us over the weekend. Phenomenal. Was here on behalf of Zoe's House Adoptions. And uh, I'm going to make a pitch for Zoe's House. I'm just going to tell you right up front. I'm going to ask you for something. I've not asked you for much on this podcast. I don't, I don't know if I've asked you for anything. Because this podcast is not really a, uh, an arm of anything. It's not really officially a part of, of the bridge. It's not a part of Zoe's house, it's it's kind of what I'm thinking on Wednesdays. That's what you're getting. Now, sometimes I'm thinking about what I taught, and so you get some of that audio, but mostly it's just what's on Randy's mind. And what's on my mind today is the cause of adoption. We had Jason Upton with us on Friday night for a worship concert, and he shared his adoption story, which I'm going to tell you right now is unlike any story I've ever heard. It doesn't hurt that the guy is an incredible storyteller. He really is. But I knew when I heard it, I thought, I want to share this with more people. And so we're going to play that in a moment. It's about maybe 20 minutes long. Uh, it is well worth the entire 20 minutes. He does not waste a second. It is a great, great story. Following that, I'm going to come back, and in a different section, I'm going to talk about a question I got on Instagram. Somebody asked me, and I'm just going to read this verbatim, and I think we all know where this is going. The question is, on the broad subject of freedoms being threatened, resist, stand up and fight, or be quiet and meek 
In other words, when we feel like our freedoms are being threatened, what is the biblical response to that? So I'm going to talk uh, about that a little bit, which was the question I was asked, and I'm going to dive into something that I was not asked about, which is the opening on the Supreme Court. And I realize it is Wednesday, I'm recording this, and there is an announcement to be made on Saturday, and everything I say may be absolutely mute after the announcement is made, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, dive into it anyway. But first, uh, about a 20-minute segment, Jason Upton's adoption story, uh, just what a story, what a story. We'll just go straight on into it. Uh, I just wanted to take a moment because adoption means so much to me. Literally, adoption saved my life. When I sing songs like, to the Lamb of God who knows me by my name, to the one my future hope depends upon. It comes from this space of experience. I like to say it kind of jokingly. I was the product of evangelism gone bad. It was the Jesus movement in America and my biological mother was the only one in her entire family. She got swept into it and gave her heart to Jesus and then she wanted to get other people saved. So she went out one night and met this guy and tried to lead him to the Lord and well, things got a little confused and they ended up in bed and Instead of leading them to the Lord, they got pregnant with me. So I like to say I was the product of evangelism gone bad, <laughs> or maybe gone good. Who knows, because God's the writer of all these stories, and they seem to get stranger by the day, don't they? So my biological father, he wasn't even living for Jesus at the time, but he had a heart that was so pure. My biological mother was being told by very influential people, we could just fly you to New York City and we could, really trying to help her, they thought, you know, we could, we could terminate this, it's not a big deal. We could just fly into New York, bring you to a place, this was even, you know, just the middle part of 1973. But it was my biological father who just cried out and said no. He was only 16 at the time. He said no, no, this, this child has to live. His mother said, I'll work three jobs if we can keep this child. So they tried to keep me for three months. My biological mother longed to keep me so much, she knitted me clothes.
rented a little apartment. She was 19 at the time. She was gonna try to keep me. She'd bring me to Lutheran social services. They'd just say, bring, bring her over to us. And there was a Catholic agency of ladies that were so sweet and they cared for her too. And they would just say, okay, if you get overwhelmed, you just bring the child, just bring him over. She named me Stephen. So they'd bring me over, she'd bring me over. And so she tried to keep me for three months and then she realized she, she just couldn't. So there was this family, the Uptons. They weren't able to have children on their own and so they longed, they were waiting to adopt another child. They'd already adopted my older brother. And so they were waiting and they finally said, yeah, we're gonna, she said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is the family. Of course, back then it was a closed adoption, which is brutal if you know anything about adoptions that she kept me for three months and then put me up for adoption and then it was, it was just closed. So I grow up, I mean, from the time I was a little boy, I knew I was adopted, you know? In fact, I thought it was so special that I was adopted, you know, because I grew up also in a church of charismatic, crazy people. And, and it, it, you know, I'd walk, I'd walk into church and just start telling people that I was adopted, especially old ladies, because they would just be like, oh, you're so special, you know? I remember the first time that I told a boy, I remember his name, can't say his name because I don't want to embarrass him. He's a great guy, but second grade, I remember I'm at the bus stop, you know, and I, I think that I'm going to get the same response from some kid at the bus stop. I said, hey, I'm, I'm adopted. He said, yeah, so what? <laughs> that was a challenge. <laughs> He looked at me and he said, you know what? You, you know, you're no different than one of those kids that they can send back, you know? I'll never, it just, I've never heard anything like this before. If you're bad, they can send you back. Now, I was enough of an evangelical kid. I'd probably, by second grade, already given my life to Jesus like 40 times. You know what I mean? I grew up in that kind of church. I mean, I got... I had so much sin in my life in second grade, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm kidding, but it was like good grief. But every time, you know, they'd call for salvation, man, I'd run to the altar because I just wanted to get saved and make sure everything was gonna be okay. Plus, this was the 70s, which some of you guys were spared from, but this was the time in the church where we'd watch terrifying films about Jesus coming back. And it was always so, we didn't, we didn't learn too much later in life in the evangelical church that this could actually be a good thing that Jesus was coming back. Jesus was coming back and he was mad. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the vibe, you know. We'd stay up at night, you know, just trying to make sure all of our sins were taken care of, you know what I mean, in second grade, you know. In fact, in 1988, there was a guy that, that wrote, that wrote, uh,
88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. And it was a New York Times bestseller. Does anybody remember this? I never read the book. I never want to read the book because it, it took a year of my life away from me. <laughs> and I remember sitting up and thinking, you know, in that New Year's Eve, you know, and then when it didn't happen, he said that he made a mathematical error. And then he said he wrote another New York Times bestseller, which means all the Christians bought it again, <laughs> that he had made a mathematical error and it was 89. He was coming back in 89. So I had to go through it for a whole nother year. Okay, you get the point. So when that boy said, if you do things that are bad, they can ship you back, I believed him. I'd have done all sorts of bad things. Of course my mom and dad could send me back. So that night I was in my bed and I couldn't go to sleep that night. I thought, I was thinking all the things I'd done wrong that my dad could send me back. And we had one of those Minnesota tri-level houses and so it took a long time to get up to the top floor where the bedrooms were and my parents were downstairs in the fireplace room. And I called out, Dad. So my dad walked all the way up the stairs. But the truth is I was actually terrified. I was terrified that it was the truth. And so by the time he got up to, the, to my room, I was scared to ask him because I thought, oh. So I said, oh, nothing, Dad, nothing. And we went through this twice. The third time I called my dad's name, he, he comes up to my bedroom and he, he says, uh, Jason, come on. I'm not leaving until you tell me what happened. Well, by the time I got those words out, I just burst into tears, right? Because I, I've done all sorts of bad things and this boy told me that you could send me back. And I never forget my dad took me like this, put his arms around me like this, he said. He said, look at me. Jason, when I adopted you, I signed a legal paper, a legal document. I signed a contract that I could never disinherit you and I could never disown you. Now, I don't wanna make all you blood children feel bad, but no parent has to sign that for a blood child. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I didn't, I was little, I didn't even know what he meant, but I, I believed him. I believed him. So I moved on into my life and I became a worshiper and I became a singer and I, when I was 16, I won all these awards. My parents couldn't believe it. My mom's tone deaf that raised me. <laughs> we had this piano in the house and she'd pay for piano lessons and I would write songs. But I was supposed to be practicing but she thought the songs were so beautiful she thought they were the songs I was supposed to be practicing. And I wanted to go out and play ball and I didn't want to practice so she'd say, Oh, that's beautiful, is that the song? And I'd say, yep, that's the song. And then eventually the piano teacher kind of had to tell her that, hey, Jason doesn't actually know any of the songs, you know, and I got in trouble for that. But from a young age, I was always writing and on the piano. And 
When I was 13 years old, I, my dad asked me, what would you want for your birthday this year? It's your 13th birthday, do you want a new bike? I said, at the time, there was this new thing on the market, it was called the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. It was huge, it was awesome. And everybody at my church had one of these and I wanted one of these Bibles. I don't know why I wanted this Bible, but I wanted it. Thompson Chain Reference Bible, big brown thing. I said, Dad, I want the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. My dad, if he, told, if he was here, he's got, you have to see him tell the story because he, he still thinks, is flabbergasted by it. He said, okay, you want a Thompson Chain Reference Bible for your 13th birthday? I said, yeah, that's what I want. He said, all right. He said, how about I get you a bike too, he said to me. <laughs> so I remember he got me a new bike and a Thompson Chain Reference Bible, 13th birthday. And I read that Bible. It wasn't because I was super spiritual, you'll find out, it's just, I just wanted to. And I read it and 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 read it. And I started writing songs out of it and started winning awards. I started putting out music. Then I went to college. Then I met Rachel. Then we went to seminary. Then we went to, did all of my MDiv work. Then did the faith record, then we did the call, we were singing over the nations. And we were doing Jacob's dream and dying star. Samuel, our child, was with us, our firstborn son. And then we were about ready to have Emma, and we were going to the doctor, and the doctor said, I was about 30, and the doctor said, you know, you need to, you need to find out your history. Right? You need to find out your, your medical history. You probably should find that out. Because I didn't have any of those records. Because it was a closed adoption and I was the only one that could open it up. But, you know, my whole life I had such a great upbringing and my parents were awesome. I just, I never did. So I called Lutheran Social. The first thing I did is I went to my mom and dad and I asked them for permission and they said, oh, we'd love it if you'd do that. So, and I called Lutheran Social Services and the lady picked up the phone and talked to me and she said, oh, your biological mother is gonna be so excited. She's been calling here since you were 18. She said, what I'm gonna do is tomorrow, tonight I'm gonna, I still have time tonight. She's in Minnesota, I'm in Wisconsin. She says, I'm gonna send you overnight still tonight a manila envelope that's never been opened. It's a time capsule that's 30 years old. And the first thing I think you should do is you should open that up and look at what's inside and then call me. So I did, I, I, 
I get the next day this manila envelope in the mail. I open it up. Actually, I went down to Lake Michigan, I remember, because I just wanted to be alone. And I open it up and I pull out all these little hats and a little outfit for me that had been knitted and pictures of my bed. My biological mother had put pictures of my bed in there, my little crib, because she thought that I would, you know, want to see that. And then there was a letter, handwritten. Dear Stephen, which is wild because I didn't even know my name was Stephen. I didn't know any of this. Dear Stephen, one thing I ask of the Lord, that you'll dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life. That you'll be a worshiper. Well, of course, you know, I'm just crying, right? Because I'm thinking of the next day when I call her and get, I mean, I just couldn't even believe it. So I keep reading. And I pray that from a young age, you'll have a passion for the scripture. Well, of course, I go right back to my 13th birthday. Because even to me, it was just strange. Why do I want to read the Bible so much? I just wanted it. So then I get the courage to call her. And that's a wild experience. It's like asking your wife to marry you, frankly. You know what I mean? It, it, you can practice it all you want, right, guys? And then you, you just it just happens the way it happens, right? So you're just like, uh, hi, I'm, I'm Jason Upton. I'm your biological son. You know, it's, it's just, it's a strange thing. And you're kind of like, well, that was a little too much. So you just kind of have to get yourself rep, you know, prepared for it. So I finally get the guts to call her. And when I call her, I just say my name. Because of course she doesn't know my name's Jason Upton. She thinks my name is Steven. And the moment I, the minute I said my name, she just burst into hysterical laughter crying. It's just bursting into laughter and glory to God and crying and weeping. She says, and then she just starts screaming, and then she's just gone from the phone. It was so, it's awkward. And she gives the phone to her now husband. She didn't marry my, my biological father. And he picks up the phone, and he says, I'm so sorry, Jason, but he, I don't even think he said my name. He just said, I'm so sorry, but she, she can't talk to you right now, but she'll call you tomorrow. So then I wait in another day, and then she calls me back. She says, she calls me back the next day. She says, Jason, I'm so sorry. It's just, it's just unbelievable to me, the goodness of the Lord. She had also written in that letter, I, I pray
that God will keep covenant between us while we're apart from one another. It was like this little thing in the letter that she said, so the, God, you've promised me that everything that I've asked of you for this child, you'll do. So I pray that you'll, you'll keep covenant between us while we're apart from each other. So she says, I, I just can't even believe it, but I used to get really depressed when I thought maybe you were dead or that something had happened to you or certainly that God hadn't fulfilled his side of the deal. She said, um, and so I, I used to get so sad and I would, I would go into this prayer room in our church and every time I went to the prayer room, they'd pray for me and all of this oppression and this sadness and depression would lift and I just knew that everything was gonna be okay. And And after doing that a few times, she said, um, finally they said to me, you know, maybe it's not just our prayers, maybe it's the music that's playing in here. This was years ago, but they, they had burned a copy of all their favorite songs of mine for the prayer room, and they would put it on in that room. So they burned her a copy and, and just in Sharpie just put on it, Jason Upton. And she put that in her car. And every time that oppression comes over to you, those ladies of prayer, they said, every time that oppression and depression comes on you and you think that God hasn't answered your prayers and your requests for Stephen, you just put that CD, that Jason Upton CD in the car. And that story isn't crazy, but it's true. There is no story that's crazier, but true, right? And she would put that CD in the car and listen to it. And, the empire knows us by number, but the Lamb of God knows you by your Isn't that good news? Mm. My story's crazy, but it's true. It started out confusing too. Just gets stranger by the day. To the world, my 
incredible story. Have you ever heard anything like that? The amount of grace that is displayed in every facet of that story is just, it's something else. And I'm telling you, adoption stories are like that. Now, they can be messy, and they can be hard, but the grace of God over the idea of adoption is because it's His heart. It's so evident. Now, I'm going to admit, I wanted to play that because I wanted to share one more thing about Zoe's house. Right now, Zoe's house has been given a $25,000 matching grant. $25,000, dollar for dollar, everything they raise gets matched. If you would consider sewing into the idea of adoption, you are writing stories like the one Jason just shared. If you go to zoeshouseadoptions.com, Z-O-E-S, zoeshouseadoptions.com, there's a donate button. Anything you give will be matched in this season of this $25,000 matching grant. If you've ever worked in a small nonprofit, $50,000 can do a ton of good. Please, please consider helping Zoe's House with this $25,000 matching grant. Thank you, Jason. So good to be with you this weekend and for uh, to be able to share that with a larger audience. Now, back on to less important matters, but questions I have been asked, and some would say very important matters, but we will leave that as it is. The question was asked, on the broad subject of freedoms being threatened, do we resist, do we stand up and fight, or do we be quiet and we be meek? Now, let me, um, let me issue all of the wisdom disclaimers here at the, at the beginning. There are people on both sides of this issue who have Bible verses, okay? Like on both sides, there are people who can trot out a scripture on you. Uh, there are godly people on both sides of this issue. And I would say there are mean people on both sides of these issues. And uh, the one at, at hand, I would say, would probably be um, 
the government telling churches in certain areas they can't meet over certain numbers and that sort of thing. I mean, that's kind of the question people are getting at. That and, and the idea of masks at a lesser lesser level. Those are things that people are asking about. Um, when our freedoms are threatened, do we resist? Do we stand up and fight? Or do we quiet and we be meek? So there are people with Bible verses on both sides. There's people who are uh, godly on both sides, and there are people who are mean on both sides. And let me just say, if you can't use Bible verses without being mean, please don't use Bible verses, okay? Like, please don't do that. If you are trotting out a scripture as a gotcha, um, the message of the Bible is not gotcha, all right? That is not the overarching message of Scripture. Please, please don't do that. Um, also, the way that some people talk about these issues, not only the issues, but the people who disagree with them, is grievous. There was a great message about two weeks back from uh, Banning Leapshire at Jesus Culture. I would encourage you to press pause on this and go listen to his podcast, the, uh, the message of the week from... Jesus Culture Sacramento on September 8th. He talked about a mature church and talked about the idea of the tone behind some of our interaction around these things with people who disagree with us. Some of you are so anti-mask that you are becoming anti-people who want to wear masks. Some of you are so pro-mask that you are becoming anti-people who are anti-mask. And there's interaction flying around online that I hope would not happen in a church foyer, but it might. And it's, it's just not honoring to people. Now, this is what I would say about these issues regarding particularly the pandemic. Um, if you're going to talk about them, please do not compare these issues to historical persecution, okay? And the reason I'm warning you is because if your church was not allowed to meet for a while, or you were only allowed to meet in small groups, and you call that persecution, at some point you're going to be in heaven standing at the snack bar with someone who endured real persecution. And uh, they're going to say, so you a martyr? You go, oh yeah, I was totally a martyr. And uh, you're going to ask them, were you a martyr? Yeah, I was totally a martyr. And you're going to say, well, what happened to you? And they're going to say, well, I lost my life, or I lost my family. And you're going to be standing there going, oh yeah, I, I, um, I had to wear a mask. That's terrible. Like, just be logical, okay? Don't call this persecution. Now, do I see double standards applied? Yeah, totally. I really do. I do not understand how a uh, large group can be endorsed to go protest, while another group is told they can't worship. Like, I, it, it feels—it is. It's a double standard. But the difference between a double standard and straight-out persecution is pretty significant. And so let's just call it what it is. Now, I also understand the idea of a slippery slope of government encroachment, and that bugs me. It really does. Not the perceived persecution, but the slow overreach with an agenda. I, I think it's very, very real. But if you're asking, do we be meek or do we resist, I think you've got to define what resist means. Are you talking about actually fighting people? Are you going to punch somebody in the nose? I mean, really, is that what you're talking about, resist? Because mostly what I see in the way of resisting is writing angry Facebook posts and snarky Instagram comments. And, I mean, if you know me well, I have a high value for snark. I'm not immune to snark. But when it's directed 
at one another over an issue like this, which in the grand scheme of history is going to seem fairly insignificant, sometimes I think we are itching for a fight. And no matter where I look in Scripture, I don't find that. So if you were looking for a simple answer of whether or not we resist or whether or not we lean back and be meek, I, I, I don't have that for you. Again, there are people with Bible verses on both sides of this issue, but I do know that our tone matters. And how we speak about believers who th- see things differently than we do matters. And I would encourage you to spend more time thinking about, am I honoring God in my speech, than do I have a responsibility to stand and fight? This is not the American Revolution. This is not um, the Holocaust. Okay? Times are hard. Times are difficult. But place them in historical context. And above all, express love and grace to one another. That's my take on that. And if, if I threaded the needle well, hopefully there are people on both sides who are mad at me, because that makes me feel like I, I represented my case pretty well. So the second question that uh, nobody asked, but I really want to talk about anyway, is the idea of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, unless you have been under a rock, you know that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last week. Uh, incredible woman in many, many ways. Uh, did great good for the cause of women. Um, also did uh, great not good uh, for the cause of unborn women. Uh, and so uh, here's the problem with saying anything critical about someone after they've passed. One, it, it just kind of seems bad form, and I get that. But also right now I see a lot of things, if anything is said critical about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, it's pushed back that they're saying you're being critical because she was a woman. That's malarkey, okay? Uh, the problem with Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not that she was a woman. It's that about certain things she was wrong. And you've got to be able to differentiate someone's sex and their opinions. Uh, now, she was right about a lot of things, and she did further the cause of, of freedom, and, and my daughters will live in a better world because of some of the work that she did, but there were children that will not live at all because of some of the work she did. So uh, she was a mixed bag, let's call it what it is. And looking forward, we're now in a position of do we replace her or do we wait for the next president or past the presidential election. Now, I have the unique position here of consistency. When this happened during President Obama's administration and Merrick Garland was nominated, I really thought they should have held hearings. I thought the guy should have got his fair shake. And uh, I did. when they didn't do that, I knew it would come back to bite us, and here we are. Had we done uh, the right thing back then, it would be easier to do the right thing right now. The right thing, of course, is to hold hearings and either seat a judge or decide not to seat a judge. The right thing is not to put it in our pocket. It was not a right thing when the Republicans did it, and it's not a right thing if the Democrats are trying to do it. So again, I have the unique uh, and it seems fairly rare position of being consistent on this. But let's talk for a minute about Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett is an American lawyer, a jurist, and an academic who serves as a circuit judge on the Seventh Circuit in the U.S. Court of Appeals. And she, on Wednesday, let's see, at 11 a.m., as I am recording this, seems to be the most likely choice to be named on Saturday as President Trump's nominee to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, again, 
Maybe you're listening to this on Saturday and he's named somebody else and you just might want to hit delete, but maybe not. This is the problem. She seems to have quite tight connections with Christian groups and having lived out her faith during the course of her career. And because of that, she is getting hammered in the press. Reuters wrote an article. This is an actual headline of the article. Handmaiden's Tale? U.S. Supreme Court candidates, religious community under scrutiny. And they kind of do a hit piece on this group called People of Praise, a charismatic Christian community, uh, and at which they say in the original article was the inspiration for Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaiden's Tale. Now, that's not true. I mean, it's literally not true. And if you go to the very bottom of the article, in italics, in very small letters, there's a correction. It says the article headline originally stated the people of praise inspired The Handmaiden's Tale. The book's author, Margaret Atwood, has never specifically mentioned the group as being an inspiration for her work. They made that up. They flat made that up. Now, the article goes on to express concern about her religious convictions and whether or not they will um, inform her court opinions. Her Christianity has been put under a microscope in a way that no other religion would in this case. If this judge were Muslim, no one would touch this. If this judge were Hindu, no one would touch this. But as a Christian, everything she says can be completely picked apart. If this nomination goes forward, I would encourage you, every time her faith is mentioned, try and delete the word Christian, insert another faith, and tell me if we would be having this conversation. This actually feels way more like persecution than being told to wear your mask. I mean, to me, this is the real deal. I don't know that she's the perfect choice. I don't know who the best choice is, but I'll tell you this. For the sake of the unborn in America, I pray that we seat a judge that values life, all life, with the sort of value that God puts in it. I hope you have a great day. I will talk to you next week on the third cup of coffee.